Well, welcome. I am not Ron Holton. Uh, for If you're a guest, which it's spring break, time change weekend, so you may not be a guest, but uh, if, you're, if you are, my name is Matt Bird. I'm the worship pastor here. Um, and man, just so grateful to have an opportunity to get to come and speak to you. Uh, grateful for our worship team that leads us every Sunday in worship. Um, man, it's so neat to kind of sit out with you guys and just worship alongside you this morning. And grateful for Austin, who's our associate uh, youth pastor that can lead so well. So um, what a great thing that we have these guys to, to lead us to the throne room each morning in worship. Um, you know, each, each, uh, each year we kind of get together a small group of us and we begin to kind of look through the preaching calendar as far as what will we talk about? What will the, the sermon series be? Who will preach where? Ron starts kind of filling in the gaps of where he's going to be gone. And so we meet and we start going through the calendar. He says, Matt, I want you to preach uh, on March 11th. And I'm like, okay, spring break. All right. Time change weekend. That's a high attendance time, Ron. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So in my mind, I'm like, well, at least surely I can have some type of rich text that will just light a fire in everybody's heart because you're here on spring break week. And so I go home to look and because, you know, I don't remember exactly what's in Luke chapter 13. And I look in the subheading to Luke chapter 13, verse one is repent or perish. And I think to myself, this is not what people want to hear on spring break when they're already tired. But no, I, I joke a little bit, man. I'm honored to be able to be up on the stage to, to learn alongside of you guys what the scripture says. Um, and in the end, man, as I've studied these scriptures and as I've looked at what does the Lord have for us, you know, we are gonna jump into the midst of some pretty difficult conversations that, that Jesus is having with a crowd of people, man. He, he, he's talking about hypocrisy and self-righteousness. He's talking about judgment and the coming of hell. All these different things that are pretty weighty subjects, but yet in the midst of a hard and difficult conversation, we still see the relentless love of our creator and savior, Jesus Christ. Man, we see him pursuing the hearts and the souls of his creation, and, and, and for me, I, I, I look and reflect and remember how grateful I am that Jesus Christ has given me hope and life through the cross. And so there's much to be had this morning in Luke chapter 13. And so I do, I just want to kind of pray over us uh, that our hearts and minds would be focused in on the scripture uh, and then we'll dive in together. And so Father, we do thank you. We thank you that in the midst of uh, difficult conversation, difficult circumstances that you Speak to the heart of men who you love, whom you created, who you desire to have relationship with you. Jesus, we thank you for the cross that provides a way for us to have our sins redeemed. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, when we jump into chapter 13 here in a second, uh, it, it really brings to mind some of the current events in my, in my mind uh, that have been happening in our nation lately. Uh, my mind goes to Stoneman Douglas High School uh, and the death of 17 innocent kids. And, uh, and even to the, the, the tragedy a few months ago of the 26 that died at First Baptist Sutherland, you know, I think in moments where tragedy strikes and, and great atrocities are, are seen, there's so many ways that we react, right? Our mind goes so many different directions. Like we want to see justice. We want to know the answer of why would this happen? Uh, we even for our own probably safety begin to, to struggle and question our own safety. And if we have children, we, we worry about the safety of our children just a little bit more. Um, and in the end, you know, there's not, there's not an answer to why these things happen. I mean, sin has entered into the world. It has fractured humanity and tragedy and atrocity will happen. 
And as we enter into chapter 13, really what has happened in this moment is the people are are asking of Jesus a similar question of a similar tragedy that has taken place in Jerusalem. And they're saying, man, you are the so-called Messiah. You are the coming king. How are you going to respond to this? How are you going to make right what was wrong? How are you going to provide protection? And what's so interesting to me is in in all the different directions that Jesus could have gone to respond to this statement He does something completely backwards from probably what anybody in the crowd would have imagined he would have said. And so we're going to jump into this. But with most scripture, man, as we jump into chapter 13, really there's already been a conversation taking place that started in chapter 12. Jesus begins a discourse to this large crowd that's gathered around him about judgment. He speaks to the idea of trading in kind of the perishable things of the world for the imperishable things of God. He talks about... um, giving our heart and soul to him. And so uh, we don't have to necessarily turn there, but I'll just quickly kind of walk you through what has led to chapter 13. And so verses one and two, Jesus begins to speak of the Pharisees, right? The religious elite of the day. And he says, beware of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, for theirs is hypocrisy. And this is gonna be kind of a theme that goes throughout chapter 13 even, where we begin to see Jesus exposing the crowd's self-righteousness and their own hypocrisy and showing their desperate need for a savior. In verse four, he even ramps it up a little more in my opinion. And he says this, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing they can do, but fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now these... These are weighty things that Jesus is bringing to the crowd, right? They had been struggling with persecution. There had been some, some deaths that had happened. And, and Jesus is going, man, do not fear the man alone. You need to fear God who can also cast your soul into hell. And then verse 13 and 21, he ends kind of with a parable, uh, probably a familiar parable to most of you guys. And a, a man had kind of worked extremely hard. He had gathered a ton of wealth, a ton of goods, and he looks and he goes, man, I have accumulated enough stuff at this point that if I rip down my old barns, build huge barns, I can store all this stuff and I can just eat, drink, and be merry. And so he does that. Man, he builds everything, gaining kind of everything that he would ever desire material-wise, builds the barns, and Jesus calls him a fool because that very night, Death came to his doorstep and his soul was required of him. And we see a man who had chased the perishable things of the world and yet forfeited his soul. He had gained the whole world yet forfeited his soul. And so these are the conversations that are taking place in chapter 12 as we jump into chapter 13, right? There's been a lot happening as we enter into 13.1. And it makes sense a little bit now that as people of the crowd are listening, even probably some of you feel a little angst of conversations like that. And I'm sure the crowd was feeling that as well. And so instead of looking inward and going, how does this apply to me? They begin to look outward and kind of begin to think about a tragedy that has taken place in Jerusalem. And they kind of, man, we want to let you know, if you are the Messiah, we're going to let you know about what's happened And I want to see how you're going to answer and respond to this tragedy that's taken place. And that leads us to chapter 13, verse 1. And here's what they say. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now there was a lot that just took place in one sentence. 
Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea at the time. He had already kind of been persecuting believers. And here's what you've got to think in your mind. It is Passover. So everybody that's a God-fearer is making their way to the temple of the Lord to worship, to give sacrifice, to make atonement for their sins. And Galileans have come and they enter in and, and scholars aren't really sure if whether they made it all the way to the temple yet or if they were on their way to the temple. But regardless, a community of believers is headed towards the temple and, and Pilate sends a group of men that just slaughters this community of people headed to worship. One of the most special moments in the Jewish uh, calendar, religious calendar, and, and here they come to worship. And, and it goes even further to the fact that Pilate had the blood of the people that was killed and the blood of the animals that they had brought to sacrifice mixed it together and pours it out on the altar of the Lord. Now for us, this doesn't necessarily resonate a ton because we're not up here sacrificing animals. But the reality is this, right? It's like Easter Sunday and a whole church gets wiped out on their way to worship. Like that would have an effect on us. There would be fear, there would be anger, there would be angst, there would be questions of why has this happened? And if this guy, this Jesus is the Messiah who has come to make things right, what is he going to do about it? And so with all eyes and ears fixed on Jesus in this moment... I wonder, what, how does he respond? What direction would he go as the savior of the universe with Calvary in the distance, knowing that he's come to redeem the souls of men? How does he respond to these questions? And he says this, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? That's an interesting question. Uh, for, for Jewish theology back then, there was the idea that this, right, if tragedy was to come, um, or even just maybe like hardcore disease that would take a life would come, most people thought that was a result of some kind of deep sin that God was judging, right? If you think all the way back to Job, right, the, Lord, the devil comes, asked to kind of sift Job, God says, okay, they're in the moment where Job is just kind of laid bare, his friends are at his feet, and what did his friends say? Job, you've got to have some kind of sin. There's something going on that you haven't confessed that you need to make right and the Lord will relent. In the end, we know this isn't truth, right? We know that, that Job doesn't have some secret sin. And so Jesus, in this moment, instead of responding, asked them a question that in reality would have been a pretty softball type of question. Well, you think these Galileans, they must have had greater sin than all the other Galileans, right? Why would God allow that to happen outside of the fact that these people were entering into judgment. And I, I can almost see myself like, I'm working on this, you know, but I'm still one of those, like if we're in a meeting and a question gets asked, even if I'm, if I'm like 60% sure I know the answer, I'm speaking out, you know. And so I, I can see myself being in the crowd. Jesus asked questions like, yeah, they had to have a ton of sin. And man, Jesus flips this upside down on the people. And he says, no. In fact, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And man, I'm, I imagine silence hit the crowd in that moment. And, and, and I don't think Jesus in this moment is saying perish is in death, like physical death, right? He's not telling the crowd, if you don't repent, something, some tragedy is going to befall you as well. But what he's saying is outside of repentance, you and your soul will perish at final judgment one day. And man, this is so different than anything that these people have heard or, or even been taught. And so Jesus continues, right? He pushes a little further. I love Jesus is always going to kind of push a little further because for these, 
For these Jews within Jerusalem, we're talking about kind of like a town outside of Jerusalem, right? It was those Galileans. Do you think those Galileans were worse than these Galileans? And then what Jesus does is, man, he, he confronts this crowd and their own self-righteousness, their own hypocrisy. And he says, now let's talk about you. And he moves to this, this moment that's happened, um, the Tower of Siloam. And it, uh, most scholars say it was, it was on the side of uh, the Jerusalem walls uh, that probably scaffolding was built up around it. It's kind of by this pool of Siloam outside of the gates. And here's what Jesus says in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? Now this is a little different question than the first. The first was those Galileans worse than those Galileans. Now we're talking to those that are living in Jerusalem. And he says, those 18 that died here in this town, were they worse than all the others in Jerusalem? Were they worse than you? Did they have greater sin than you? Is that why they died? And man, in that moment, honestly, without words, the crowd had already kind of said yes, right? Like the fact that they were still alive, the fact that they hadn't incurred the strict judgment of the Lord says, yes, we do feel like they must have been worse than us. And man, Jesus, in an act of extreme love, confronts that sin. And he says, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And in these moments, we begin to see the love of our Savior as he attacks the very heart need of all mankind. Like this is playing out and there are so many different things that God could have talked about, right? Like Jesus could have talked about the why this is happening or the fact that he was coming to redeem all things. But instead, he speaks straight to the heart and the need of all humanity. That repentance must come to have reconciliation with the Lord. And I find it interesting, right? Like I find it interesting that these people weren't even asking a question when they started this conversation. The question was not, you know, why, why are bad things happening to good people? They weren't, they weren't asking that question. They were more making a statement, right? Like, God, we, we, we see, Jesus, we see that bad, why bad things are happening to bad people. They're just, they're just kind of stating this, these people were bad and that's why it happened. And you'd almost think that Jesus would respond with, well, let me tell you why bad things happen to good people. But he doesn't. Like he's teaching a whole different mindset, a whole different lens to speak through. He, he's teaching that in these moments, like you and I in this crowd, like there's never a day where you and I have earned the favor of God. Like you realize that. I mean, that's, that's hard for us, right? Like we, we, we don't meet the standard. That's one of the great things about Christianity is that we don't have to because Jesus did it in our stead. But we don't meet the standard. And so the question that needs to be asked and, the, and kind of the statement that Jesus is setting forth is this. Every single one of us has been fractured and infected by sin and outside of repentance, we will perish in hell. Like the sad fact is this. What we deserve, you and I, what I deserve because of my sin is hell. And, and that's it. Like the Lord could leave us in that and still be just and still be Right? And so Jesus is, is now speaking a totally different language, right? He's not saying, why do bad things happen to good people? But he's saying, why would a loving, holy, merciful God allow good things to happen to wicked people? Why would good things come to bad people? And that's you and I. And it's a totally different way to begin to look at life. 
right? Like you and I don't deserve the good gifts of God and yet he lavishes them on us because of his grace and love towards his creation. And you know, I mean, I would venture to say there is, there is many heartache and, and bad things that have come through our lives in this room with this many people and I would never, ever want to minimize that, right? I, I believe that sin has fractured the world and tragedy will come and bad things will happen. And I believe that, that Jesus' heart breaks with our heart when those moments come. You know, I don't, I don't think that he's trying to minimize the fact that God fears were slaughtered and killed in a horrendous way. He's not minimizing that. But what he is saying is this, that he's still faithful, that he's still good, and that in the end, None of us deserve the good gifts that he gives. Like our merit doesn't earn that. And I, and I believe that if we begin to look and see God and how he's, he, he moves in our lives, I believe it moves us to worship when we see that, man, in spite of the tragedy, in spite of the bad things that will come in life, God is still faithful and good and just, and he lavishes his love on us that we might be the children of God. And that should cause us to worship. It should cause the cross of Jesus to become great because our sin becomes great and we see our desperate need for our Savior. And I believe that is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to combat against the self-righteousness of these people who would think, I'm really not that bad. And he's saying, no, you will perish outside of repentance. You know, and I would venture to say that if you're like me, Man, we struggle with this. Like, this is a wrestling that we wrestle with as well. Um, and I, I think there's kind of ways that we could see that, you know. I think one of the ways that we could see that, uh, just in the world in general, like if, if you've ever shared your faith with somebody, um, the number one answer I get from people that say that they're going to heaven outside of like giving uh, the answer through Jesus Christ alone, you ask someone, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? And they say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Like, that's the general stance of most people and Jesus is teaching a whole different thought than that, right? He's saying, no, we, our, our best days are as filthy rags unto the Lord. We are desperately in need of a savior. You know, I think another way this plays out is like when bad things happen to bad people, do we not feel a sense of justice that that's happened in a way? And even for me, right, I'm, I'm like preparing this sermon. I'm like, I feel like, you know, I, I know I've got some self-righteousness, but I'm working through that. It's self-righteousness in his own thinking, isn't it? And so I'm coming home from the gym yesterday getting ready to preach this this morning. And uh, outside of my neighborhood, there's a guy that has gotten his sport bike and he, he's pushing it on the sidewalk beside the street, headed towards my neighborhood. He's still got a good mile. So I pass and I'm like, oh man, that's horrible. And then I'm like, all right, Lord, we'll go back. I got things to do. I got to prepare this sermon, whatever. So I go back, I pull around. And as I'm turning, I see the state trooper on the other side of the road in this parking lot. And I'm thinking, man, why is, why is he just sitting there not helping so I turn around and I pull up. I'm like, hey, dude, can I help you? What, 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 what's going on? He's like, nah, man, I'm good. Uh, uh, I was like, well, did your bike break down? Or are you out of gas? I could, I could do whatever. And he's like, no, actually, I don't, this bike's not registered and I don't have a license. And that cop pulled me over and told me I had to push it all the way back to my house. <laughs> and so in my mind, I'm like, oh, you're an idiot. All right, cool, man. I'll see you later. And so I leave and there's part of me that's like rejoicing and you got what you deserve, stupid. Like, why are you doing that? And I get home and I tell this story to Katie and Katie's like, hey, do you remember my dad's dirt bike that he used to have when we first got married 10 years ago? We would go ride around on this dirt bike around town without a license and registration. And I was like, 
I'm that guy, you know, like I'm the same guy. And in my mind, I'm like, that would never happen to me. I'm a good person, right? Like there's still part of us that goes, yeah, when, when justice comes and bad people get what they deserve, that, that's what's coming to them. And in the end, it's just a, it's a, it's a minimizing the view of our own sin and, and what we deserve. Um, man, and, and what about this? Like, what about when good things come our way? Is there not part of us that are like, I've been doing pretty good. I've been reading my Bible, being nice. I stopped for that guy straight on the side of the road. I should get some good things. And Jesus is going, no, like you deserve nothing outside of judgment. And, and, and it gets really hard, right, when, when we're doing what we feel like is right, right? We're coming to church, we're reading our Bible, we're, we're giving and serving, and yet bad things come, right? Like what happens when we're doing what's right and tragedy comes? Or our marriage begins to fall apart, or our child goes astray and rebels, or the cancer comes. Like, is there not something inside of us that just screams out to the Lord, like, why is this happening to me? Like, I, I, I'm a good person, Lord. I don't deserve this. And again, I don't want to minimize those things. I, I believe those still are a result of the fall, and I believe that Jesus' heart breaks over the sin that has infected us all. But the reality is this, right? Like, any good gift is a gift from the Father that we don't deserve because we are wicked people at heart. Like if, if we were to allow the word of God, right, like the standard of God, if we really are brave enough to enter into the Lord and say, sift my heart, sift my soul, show me the places where I still do not look like Jesus. And, and when that happens, man, the sad reality is there are several places in my heart that are still wicked, that still need Jesus to come in and do his work. And so I am in the same boat as you, right? I'm a wicked person that deserves no good, and yet God in his great love lavishes it on us. And it causes me to desire to repent. Um, And so the question is then at this point, if if Jesus' main push, if his main desire in this moment is for these people to find true repentance, I think the question then becomes like, I think we need to talk about what true repentance is, right? I think that's still applicable for us in this moment. And for me, growing up in a small First Baptist church, like repentance in my mind was at the end of a sermon, you came forward and you went to the altar and you confessed your sins. And the reality is, is confession is a part of repentance, but it's not biblical repentance. And so if, if Jesus in this crowd, this multitude is saying, look, some of you guys don't even realize your need for repentance, I would venture to say that in this room this morning, there's some of us that don't realize our need for repentance. So what is it? What does repentance look like? Well, I want to start with what repentance is not. Um, repentance is not cleaning up the outside to look spiritual, right? If you remember in verse 12, or chapter 12, he begins by kind of calling out the Pharisees, the religious people who had done an excellent job of knowing what to look like on the outside, yet their heart was far from God. If you go to church for any length of time at all, like we learn how to speak Christianese, right? Like you guys know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in this room. And if someone asks you a question, more than likely you know the right answer. And if you don't, you can say Jesus, and that's always the right answer, right? Like we know how to do this. But man, the Pharisees, here they are with all the right answers and and look so religious on the outside, and yet their heart is far from God. Man, this walk with Jesus, true biblical repentance is not just cleaning up the outside. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse the inside. Repentance is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. 
Man, I, I find that sometimes when I speak to people, their idea of repentance is this, right? Like, okay, yeah, I know I've got some sin in my life, so what I'm going to do is maybe give a little extra this month. Or I'm going to go, we're gonna, our family's going to go serve together a little bit. Or, man, hey, I read my Bible six days. I rested on the seventh, but I read for six days this week, right? And in the end, there isn't this, like, merit system, this weight scale system where we go, okay, there was some bad last week, so I'm going to really bring the good on so this balances out. Like, no, that's not repentance. Repentance is, is, is a desire to mortify, to put to death the sin that is in our life. Man, repentance is not half-hearted devotion to the Lord as though he needs favor from us, right? There, some of us have incredible gifts. Some of us have incredible material gifts, and we give generously, and I'm so grateful for that, right? But there's not a day where, like, one of us walks into Rock Point, and God's like, man, I'm so glad that person's at Rock Point. That thing would tank without their gifts and their needs. I, I need you. No, like, that's not repentance, giving of our gifts and all those things, and repentance is not feeling bad that our sin was felt out, found out. You know, in, in the end, repentance over our sin, brokenness over our sin is the fact that we've sinned against a holy God and that it's, it's broken those around us. But, but I find sometimes most people aren't really wanting to be repentant about their sin until it's found out. Right? It's not a brokenness over the sin issue. It's a, it's a brokenness over the fact that the facade of what was on the outside has now been kind of cracked and fractured. So what is biblical repentance? Well, the Bible plays it out in kind of a threefold way. It's a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. So for me, right, there was a moment in time where I'm, I'm headed this direction and I'm saying, okay, for me, I'm going to follow the lust of my heart, my own desires, my, everything that I think that will satisfy me. And I radically encounter Jesus. And I see that there's a totally different way that Jesus asked for me to go. And it's not just a mental thing where I'm going, okay, I, I believe that. Like, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. Cool, that's, that's repentance. No, like, it's more than that, right? Yes, it, 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 it's a mental thing, but also it's a, a heart thing where I go, okay, like, I am no longer going to be seated on the throne of my heart. I give that throne to you, King Jesus, and I'm going to follow you the rest of my days. I'm laying down my own, my own desires, my own wants, the own direction of my life. All that I own, all that I have is now yours, and I will follow you. That is biblical repentance. And so for this crowd, as they're sitting around, Jesus is saying, have you, have you experienced that kind of repentance, a moment where you have stepped off the throne room of your heart and given that over to King Jesus? And that same question goes out to us this morning. And I'll tell you, as, as true repentance happens, as biblical repentance happens, I believe we begin to keep in repentance, right? The Bible talks about producing fruit of producing repentance because there's these moments in life as a believer where we're like I, I've, I've had that moment right I've had the moment I've found Jesus I've been radically saved by Jesus I'm headed this way and then our heart is so prone to wonder right and then we're going and all of a sudden we're like well maybe over there actually is what's going to satisfy and then we realize no this is a way that leads to death this is the only way that re- leads to life so I turn from that I think differently about that I give my heart back to you Lord that I would follow you there should be continual repentance happening in the life of a believer that has experienced biblical repentance. And you know, I love that Jesus, in, in chapter 12, he uses the, the word leaven to describe the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, right? Like they are permeating all this religiosity and yet they don't know God. 
And he comes back to an example of leaven in chapter 13, verses 19 through 20. Um, he's, he's more speaking of how the kingdom of God was going to flourish, like it was going to start small and become huge, i.e. we're sitting here and this started in a small town in Jerusalem, right? But I think it's still applicable to us, right? Like we have faith in the Lord, a small amount of faith, and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, like our heart, mind, and life are radically transformed when repentance takes place. Like all of a sudden, we permeate Jesus. We permeate our creator. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, is our life permeating Jesus? Like has true biblical repentance taken place? Because in a moment where Jesus could have addressed so many different issues, he addresses the issue of the heart and the need for repentance. And I'll tell you this, I believe that as we experience true repentance, as we begin to walk in this newness of life, right? As we sing songs, oh, your grace so free that washes over me. Like as we celebrate that, we see our wickedness. We see the beauty of the cross. And I think there's something in us that then decides, man, I want to be someone that tells others about this need for Jesus, right? I think we begin to see through the lenses of our Savior who wanted the crowd to repent so they might find life. Like I believe when we find true repentance, I believe then we begin to look at the outside world in a different way. We have a longing and a desire for them to be made right, for them to find repentance, to be a part of the mouthpiece of the gospel message. And so kind of finishing up what Jesus is doing in this moment, he, he ends with a small parable. And he does this a lot, right, to kind of drive home the point. And, and for the most part, this parable is speaking to Israel and the fact that they're probably not going to repent and turn away, but there's still so much to glean from us. And so let's just look quickly at these last couple of verses in the parable of the barren fig tree. Verse six, and he told this parable, a man had a fig, a fig tree planted in, the, in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I have found none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should not bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I love this because we see the heart of Jesus in this moment. Like we see some attributes happening. We see the coming judgment, but we also see the grace and the long suffering of our God and King. And so you've got this guy who owns a vineyard, has planted a fig tree. And at first glance, you'd be like, dude, dude went to the tree, there wasn't fruit. And he's just like, cut it down, I'm done with it. But in reality, there has been years and years that have passed, right? A fig tree takes three years before it can even produce fruit. And this guy says he's been coming for three years to see that it had fruit and it didn't. So we're talking about a six-year deal. And I don't know, I mean, we can, we can guess and make up more story if we wanted to of this, you know, this vine dresser. You know, maybe he's making money and profit off these trees and it's using up the ground and he's, he could put another tree in there that'd be profitable. I don't know. That's definitely extra biblical there. Um, but in the end, right, like there's this moment where he's like, I have invested. I have nurtured this tree for six years. It was made, created to produce fruit. It's not producing fruit. Cut it down, we'll put something else in there. And so we see like the judgment of the Lord, like the fact that he is gonna have his way with sin one day. But then we see this attribute of his long suffering and patience towards his creation as the vine dresser comes in and he says, and intercedes and says, man, let's just do one more year. Like one more year, I'm gonna dig around it. I'm gonna do everything 
possible to make this tree produce fruit. Let's give it one more year to do what it was created to do. And then if not, we'll cut it down. And an act of grace and love towards really just his people, Jesus is pointing us to the fact that, that God continues to pour his grace and patience on us, waiting that we might repent and come to know him. You know, and to me, the other thing that sticks out in this moment is this. Like we think about this tree that's taking up the nutrients of the ground, like soaking it in and yet it's not producing fruit, the one thing that it was created to do. You know, and the Bible's clear that, that as we become believers, as, as Christ indwells at us, now he's made us new creations and our purpose is now to produce fruit. Like your destiny, right? What you're created to do at this point is to produce fruit for the glory of God, for your good, and that we might be salt and light in a dying and dark world. Like that's your purpose. Um, and I wonder for some of us, like, do we soak up the nutrients of the ground and yet there's no fruit being produced? Like do we, do we grow in knowledge? Do we grow in wisdom? Do we have Bible studies? Do we, do we spend so much time within these walls and yet as we leave this place, going to, to do what we were created to do, we're blind to those that are dying. And as the Bible says, unless they repent, we'll perish in eternity. Like, are we just soaking up nutrients and not producing any fruit? And man, I think for some of us, and even myself, there's moments where we go, that's an area of repentance for me. Like, that's an area where I need my mind and heart to change, and I need to follow the direction of the Lord because I know that it produces life. And so there's so much in these moments going on. We see the radical love of Jesus. We see his pursuit of his people. He ends with, with verse 34. You know, like he starts lamenting over Jerusalem. Because in the end, we know they, they don't turn back, right? Like they don't repent. And in verse 34, we hear the heart of our Savior as he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who sent it, how often would I have gathered you, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you are not willing. Like we see Jesus saying, man, I, I have come that you might have life. I've come that you might find repentance. I want to gather you to myself, and yet you're unwilling to do so. The heart of a father, the heart and love and grace towards his creation is shown. Second Peter 3, 8 through 10 says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In the end, the patience of the Lord will end, right? And Jesus and his great love for this crowd says, there's gotta be a moment of repentance. There's gotta be a moment that you step off the throne room of your heart and you give that over to me as king. And so some of my closing thoughts, just thinking through what all we've looked at this morning is this. One, I'm so grateful that our God didn't leave us in our sin, which is what we deserve. He had every right, and yet in his great love for his creation, Jesus provides a way for the souls of men to be redeemed. 
I'm thankful that God is concerned about tragedy and brokenness in our world and eventually that he will redeem all things. Scripture says that even creation is groaning in eager expectation for the coming day of the Lord and that he had a mind and a thought for us even while we were his enemies, like he still pursued us, longing for us to be redeemed. I'm thankful for God who pursues us relentlessly and lavishes good gifts on people who don't deserve them. And I'm thankful that he has given us the privilege of spreading the message of repentance and hope, satisfying the greatest need of all men and women, that we get to be called up into the story of, of Luke chapter 13, and we get to be a part of the expansion of the kingdom of God. What a great purpose that he has given to us. Let me pray for us. And so Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that in the midst of tragedy, that you are faithful and you are good. We thank you that you are a giver of good gifts to those that don't deserve them. Jesus, we thank you that you pursue us. And and though we are your, your enemy and running from you, you run after us that we might find redemption, that we might find forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the gift of repentance, that you would radically transform our hearts and minds in the direction of our life and give us a purpose so much greater than we could give ourselves. Lord, would we be people that live our lives for your glory, that see those around us as those that are perishing outside of repentance. Would the gospel message be on our lips. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, we are about to move into a time of offering like we normally do. And if you are a guest, um, Alan kind of alluded to this earlier, there is a, a card in the seat back in front of you, a connect card that we would love for you to fill out that we could give any information that you feel comfortable giving because we want to connect you to this body. Rock Point is an incredible place to belong. And so we want you to be able to, to belong here as well. And then also as we move into offering, it's a chance for us to give of of the good gifts that Jesus has given to us, a chance to give back those things in worship. And so we're going to do that. But the one thing as we were preparing for this moment that I didn't want to do was just kind of go through the motions of offering, right? Like this happens every week. Like we... Ron preaches and we have the offering and we go home. And, and so I think if you're anything like me, there's moments where we can kind of just get through these last five to 10 minutes and then head out. And, and I think what I would love for us to do is spend time reflecting and responding to the things that Jesus has spoken to our hearts this morning. I've asked Austin to sing a song called Reckless Love that we've never sung in here before. And, and the words of this song go so well with the, the love and the, the, the pursuit of our God and King. And so even if you want to take this time to let those words kind of just wash over you to think, God, where are the areas that I need to respond this morning? I mean, for some of us, it may be that we've never reached that point of true biblical repentance where we've said, I'm stepping off the throne room of my heart and I'm allowing Jesus to be my King. I'm asking for you to be the substitution. I'm asking for you to cleanse my sin. Maybe to this morning is the moment where you say, I, I, I want that kind of repentance. I want to start a relationship with Jesus. And if you do, at the end of the service, there'll be prayer partners here that you can come and would love to kind of walk you through what that would look like. And then for the believers in this room, like I want us to take a moment. Like I want the heaviness of repentance. I want the heaviness of Could we be people that are possibly soaking in a ton of nutrients but not producing fruit? I want us to feel a little bit of the angst of our neighbors around us that don't know Jesus, and yet we've been given the keys to the kingdom, the answer for salvation. Are we burdened for them? Are we burdened for those that are around us that if they do not repent, they will perish? 
And also maybe just a moment for you to go, man, I have been living self-righteously. Like there was something in me that thought I deserved the good gifts that I'm getting and didn't deserve the bad that comes in my life. And maybe in this moment, you just want to take some time and just thank Jesus for his good gifts that he has lavished on us. And so whatever that looks like, just allow the song to just kind of minister to your heart. Take time to worship through offering. Um, just whatever the Lord leads, do that. And so as, as our musicians begin to sing, the ushers will come forward and, and offering will begin. But you do whatever you feel like the Lord is leading you to do.